All right, we are on day nine of Rockford reading. We're reading Have Black Lives Ever Mattered by Mamiya Abu-Jamal. <clears throat> uh, thank you for being with me these last couple of episodes. I had a little bit of a scratchy, scratchy throat. Uh, okay, the Dorner Manifesto, February 26, 2013. In the news business, yesterday's news is, well, no longer news. It's stale, old, useless. Yet this rush for what's new often ignores that which bears closer scrutiny. I speak at the memorandum written by LAPD's former elite officer, Christopher Jordan Dorner, who went on a homicidal rampage and was later killed during an armed conflict in the hills of Southern California. This document, titled, quote, Last Resort, end quote, runs some 10 pages long, and news accounts have not given it a full or fair portrayal. Many, perhaps most, reporters opinioned that he was obviously crazy, thereby suggesting that his own stated basis for his anti-LAPD actions were unworthy of consideration. These are the journalists who perform their services and serve the powerful, not the public. One well-known journalist all but dragged that he received a package from Dorner. Excuse me. One well-known journalist all but bragged that he received a package from Dorner, yet didn't read his contents. Instead, he dutifully turned it over to the police. Amazing. I don't have internet access, but someone had the kindness to send me a hard copy of Dorner's text. What I read was, to say the least, stunning. If you want to see behind the so-called quote "thin blue line." I urge you to read it. <clears throat> it really is a remarkable first-person account of Christopher Jordan Dorner's life in the LAPD and his treatment there, including his vigorous responses when someone used a racial epithet in his presence. In one example, he cites the free use of the word, quote, nigger, end quote, by a cop in his vehicle. He told the fellow officer that it was unacceptable, but the cop just kept using it. Dorner stopped the car, grabbed the offender, and choked him. When the incident was reported, only one other cop admitted that they heard the hateful language. But I again urge you, read Dorner's text for yourself. It will not only give you insight into the inner workings of the LAPD, more important, it will give you insight into the media. Dorner repeatedly implored journalists to investigate his claims, but there's little chance now. It's old news. So on that passage, we're uh, diving more into the story of Christopher Dorner, which Mamiya Abu-Jamal had presented to us uh, a couple passages prior. I think one of the things that's important to have uh, <clears throat> to have a conversation about is the type of violence that is bred in the in the institution of policing. And uh, one of the things that I've I've said stated previously, not on this specific podcast series, but on in other platforms and mediums in which I've spoken is that the act of the institution of policing does not only does not only dehumanize the victims that they deal with every day and dehumanize these communities that they deal with every day but in the in the 
in the action of doing those things and by adopting the ideology that leads them to do that dehumanization, they also do the job of barbarizing themselves and dehumanizing the people that work for these institutions. And so it has a, a, a double effect to it. And we may not see all the time the traumas and the way that it uh, the way that this violence that these officers are doing uh, affects them individually or personally, but you can uh, you can imagine through statistics like uh, police officers or 40 percent of police officers. And I think this, of course, this is probably a varying statistic, but 40 percent of police officers are have been involved in domestic disputes. The amount of police officers that commit suicide just recently in Illinois, there was a police officer that committed suicide on the uh, on the highway. <clears throat> we have to take the into account that. Some of these actions are taking place because of the the nature of the institution of policing and the way that it negatively affects the the people that are enacting these things. <clears throat> and so I think with Christopher Dorner, that's one of the the thoughts that I have as we read through the, the passage on Christopher Dorner. A harsh light on New York's criminal justice system, April eighth, two thousand thirteen. The riveting documentary Central Park Five was an explosive example of what scholar Michelle Alexander has termed, quote, the new Jim Crow, end quote. But upon reflection, we find that it wasn't so, quote, new, end quote, after all. Five young black and Latino boys charged with raping a white woman were sacrificed on the unholy altar of political expediency and blind ambition, cut up, ripped from their lives and families, and thrown into the hellish furnace of prison for years to burn and weep despite their innocence. Documentarian Kim Burns and his daughter Sarah Burns have produced a work that shines a harsh light on New York's criminal justice system, where all of its elements, police, prosecutors, defense lawyers, and the press fail to heed the most fundamental feature of fair trials, the presumption of innocence, and they therefore became agents, aiders, and abettors of acute injustice. But... While the Burns' work is brilliant and indeed heartbreaking in its recitation of the crimes committed against the five boys, one feature seems to be missing. There is no discussion of the judiciary, especially the appellate courts. We know that the trial judge slept while this travesty shattered the young boys' lives, but were any appeals filed? Any post-conviction writs? Any federal proceedings? It is possible that none were filed, given how bleak many of the families felt after the 1989 trial and convictions. But if they were filed, that story too must be told. For if so, it would show the rank corruption and the political servility of appellate courts which failed to do justice for five children and in so doing, damned themselves as well. <clears throat> and so again, uh, Mami Abu Jamal is returning to returning to speak about the Central Park Five, uh, returning to speak about uh, the wrongful conviction that they had uh, 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 deemed against them, which again that falls closer under the root of or closer under the branch of mass incarceration when it comes to the separating police terrorism, mass incarceration, or racial injustice, uh, and the macroaggressions that have come from them. And this book is primarily speaking about these macroaggressions. And so 
when Mamiya Abu-Jamal speaks about how it's not only, it was not only the police officers who were wrong, who were wrong, wrongfully, who were on the wrong side of history in the conviction of the Central Park Five, but the judges, the the prosecutors, the media, all of these people who presume the guilt of these children as opposed to presuming them to be innocent because of their skin color, because of the communities that they came from. And even though for them, they they were able to uh, be vindicated in some, in some form, they were able to be vindicated in some form, they, uh, there are many and thousands, if not tens of thousands of people uh, currently that are that will not have the opportunity to be vindicated, that will be presumed to be guilty before being innocent and who will become victims to false narratives pushed in the press, who will become victims to public defenders or lawyers <clears throat> who will not get, who, who will not believe their story and who will not fight for them the same way they may have fought for their white counterparts. Uh, they will be victims to judges who have biases and to prosecutors with biases. And so, Again, as we continue to read about these uh, these different elements that uh, const <coughs> Man, excuse me, sorry about that, sorry about that. As we continue to read about these different elements that constitute uh, police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, uh, I think that one of the things we want to continue to do is just realize how many different people these things happen to on a regular basis and how many different years these stories that we're reading here span through and how many different families are affected by it and, and uh, all of those things. Okay. Will Trayvon Martin's killer be acquitted? July 8th, 2013. By the time these words reach you, perhaps it will all be over. Quote, it, end quote, is the Zimmerman trial in Florida. I have no idea how the trial may have boosted ratings for CNN or CNBC, for that matter. But I let it. But I, I bet it helped increase the usual low summer viewership. In this place, a prison population, every man with the mouth wants to discuss the case. In the chow hall, on the walkways, in the gym, on the yard. Not even the buxom beauties of love and hip hop have garnered that much attention. Quote, are you watching the trial? End quote. Quote, who do you think is going to win? End quote. Questions bounce like basketballs as all eyes are locked on this, the latest, quote, trial of the century. End quote. The trial of George Zimmerman for killing unarmed 17-year-old Trayvon Martin has snatched a level of public attention that hasn't been seen since the O.J. Simpson murder trial in the mid-1990s. I believe, frankly, that Zimmerman will be acquitted. I may be wrong, but I don't think so. I've never seen a defense lawyer utilize so skillfully the jujitsu style techniques of witness flipping. In all honesty, the state's prosecution witnesses became defense witnesses. And where the defense was adroit, the prosecutor bumbled and fumbled. I may be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. The verdict, black life is as cheap as day-old pretzels, July 14th, 2013. It may have started with the bang, but it ended with the whimper. The acquittal of George Zimmerman for the slaying of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was, for a generation of youth, a wake-up call. 
Young people around the country made this their cause and believed, as only young people can, that justice would prevail. But belief and knowledge are two very different things. While it is true that national protests forced the state of Florida to try Zimmerman, they did not result in the ends they sought. Mr. Zimmerman, the son of a judge and defended by a lawyer who is the husband of a judge, received a trial, but not one that most folks have ever seen. An almost all-white jury threw it out after roughly a day and a half of deliberations. What does it mean? Well, it means precisely what you think it means. Black life is as cheap as day-old pretzels. It means that white life is privileged and important. It also means that white fear is the operative perspective from which all core action flows. <clears throat> Four, if we reverse the two principles here, and Trayvon has survived this encounter, who can doubt, excuse me, for if we switch the two principles here, and Trayvon has survived the encounter, who can doubt that he would be en route to Stark, Florida, the home of death row and its infamous death chamber? Trayvon would, have, Trayvon would have had an overworked and underpaid public defender, one who would have considered a life sentence a victory. As long as this holds true, then talk of equality is just as fantastic as stories of Santa Claus. What we talk about freedom, justice, equality, and fair trials, it is just that, talk. When one enters the courtroom, the talk ceases. It's time for legal war. Trayvon is one, they are many. July 21st, 2013. The Trayvon Martin case is rightly the straw that broke the camel's back, for it shows with unusual clarity how black life is so easily trivialized. But it is not alone in this endeavor. The way the corporate media have responded to this tragedy is its own form of trivialization. A feeding frenzy of sheer spectacle, the exploitation of emotion, and the endless, directionless discussion leading less to light than to commercials. For the media offer the episodic while they ignore the systematic. Thus, Trayvon's case attracts the lights and videos, but the many others who fall, especially the police violence, draw little interest. Absent from most discussions is the targeting of a system that cages more people than any other in history. Lost from the orgy of spectacle are the hidden faces of mass incarceration that impacts millions. For attention to the episodic elicits tears, while contemplation on the systematic brings the challenge of change. If, quote, stand your ground, end quote, gets replaced, excuse me, gets repealed, it does not change the system that treats many youths as expendable. <clears throat> Several months ago, by just one vote, the U.S. Supreme Court condemned the practice of sentencing juveniles to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Of all the jurisdictions in America, indeed, in the whole wide world, Pennsylvania ranked first in life incarcerations of juveniles. First. But juveniles aren't only the targets of the prison in the industry. They also face shuttered schools, rampant joblessness, and the fear and loathing of their elders. They face tomorrows of emptiness. They face the faceless fury of a system that damns them to half lives at their birth. Trayvon is one. They are many. 
And so I read two passages that time. Uh, we're, we're going through what, what looks to be a string of passages about Trayvon Martin and the implications of the, the not guilty verdict or the dismissal of the charges against George Zimmerman for the murder of Trayvon Martin. And I think that, uh, and Mami Abu-Jamal stated this, that for a lot of people, Trayvon Martin was a wake-up call. And I think for even some of the people where Trayvon Martin may have not been a wake-up call, Trayvon Martin was the beginning of a domino effect or was the, the the marker at least for me I can say that that was the marker for me Trayvon Martin was you know, what Emmett Till may have been for some people what George Floyd now has become what will become for some people uh, it was the moment in which I became more conscious about these things I always knew about these things growing up as a black man in this society growing up as a, a black teenager a black child my mother always spoke to me about the dangers of of existing while being black in this society but it was when Trayvon Martin had been murdered and I had a, a son of my own and I seen my son in Trayvon Martin that uh, I began to be have a heightened awareness of these things and and so every every person who has been either killed by a white vigilante, killed by uh, the state by state sanctioned violence since then, died in, in the custody of the state. Uh, I have I hearken back to Trayvon Martin, to the emotions and to the feelings that I had about Trayvon Martin. And I also was uh, naive and in in in. It's hard to use the word optimistic with wanting somebody to be in prison, but based on the where I ideologically was at at that time, I, de, uh, I was optimistic that uh, George Zimmerman would be found guilty and would have to face uh, the consequences for his actions. Uh, and that was not what took place. And then I, I think that that, <clears throat> again, helped to f help me to have a more realistic perception of the society that I existed I existed within. So by the time we got to uh, uh, the Freddie Grays and to the stories of Sandra Bland's, I had already had an understanding that uh, black life was as cheap as, pre as they owe pretzels in this society. And I think that one of the things that has to be balanced with the understanding of that is that that has to be challenged. We don't just we can't just accept that reality and not try to uh, fight back against it or to not try to struggle against it. And so I think that the most uh, one of the most important things that did come from the murder of Trayvon Martin and the the movement that was around Trayvon Martin is the 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 beginning of a of a spirit of struggle being infused into a generation and being infused into uh, and being infused into the the society and th these are all sort of the thoughts that I have when reading these passages from Mamiya Abu Jamal about Trayvon uh, the murder of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman. I think one of the other things that I also uh, stands out to me is how 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 it's how the ebbs and flows of the, this specific issue. Uh, how they how this specific issue comes in ebbs and flows or comes in waves and so Trayvon Martin was a wave and then and then when Ferguson Michael Brown was a wave and then it was George Floyd was the way was a wave and in each one of these waves there are other names that that get attached to the the specific this one specific name and even times uh, as we seen with George Floyd when George Floyd was murdered that the story of Bianca Taylor, the stories of uh, Ahmaud Arbery, we uh, began to 
resurface and be uh, become uh, more uh, local, globally known uh, because of how much attention was being put on the murder of George Floyd. And the same thing happened in, in Ferguson when Michael Brown was killed around that same time. Uh, Freddie Gray in, in Baltimore and Sandra Bland and I'm, I'm trying to think of the young man's name in, in New York, and I'm not uh, it's not clicking right now. But <clears throat> all of these, all, we, we see how all of these uh, different macro aggressions that maybe at one point in time when they initially happen may fly underneath the radar. Uh, uh, eventually, there is there is always a specific macro aggression of police terrorism or mass incarceration or racial injustice that is specific. Uh, or that has some type of uniqueness to it that uh, brings national attention to the issue again. And I think that one of the things that we have understood organizationally is that we want to be prepared and in position where when that happens again, we can try to use that platform that is given to this issue to elevate the people who have been victims of the macroaggressions in Rockford and in Winnebago County. Okay, let's move to the next passage. Trayvon who? August 8th, 2013. If the media are any measure of the mood of the masses, then the sound and fury of the Trayvon Martin case is over. In place of the rage of protest, there is now silence and, quote, the beast, end quote, the media, moves in in search of new prey. A missing white female? A windfall from the state lottery? And Obama pewed and dust up? Cool. The rage of millions now get submerged under the dark, roiling waters of yesterday to bubble briefly and drown in the muck and mire of memory. As for, quote, leaders, end quote, both civil and political, aside from their lame efforts to repeal laws, they have no idea how to attack the real problem, and they return to their primary jobs to keep the masses cool, to tamp down their furious anger, and to keep a false peace. And things just get worse and worse. National civil rights groups tied at the hip to the Democratic Party work in tandem to keep the many cool, lest true resistance arises. The late great scholar activist Manny Marable in his 2002 work, The Great Wells of Democracy, noted how local activists, often at odds with national groups, push for change and use imagination, insight, and grassroots power to build movements against the racist violence used by police against black people. Wrote Marable, quote, Such struggles bring into the public arena diverse and sometimes contradictory ideological and social forces. In the Cincinnati grassroots resistance movement, a wealth of new ideas were brought out in public brainstorming sessions, especially in the areas of public poli policy issues and economic development, end quote. Marble concludes, quote, virtually unnoticed at the local level in hundreds of black communities across the nation, successful models of resistance are flourishing, end quote. Trayvon Martin's life and sacrifice are too precious to be left in the hands of politicians. People must, quote, organize, 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 end quote, to quote the late revolutionary Kwame Ture, to build resistance movements to protect and defend black life. It must begin as all life begins at the grassroots. And so that's one of the things that has been of the utmost importance of the May 30th Alliance is understanding 
understanding the necessity of having grassroots movement building, of having grassroots organizing, of having grassroots mobilizing in Rockford, Illinois, in Winnebago County. The and I think that that is that is in, in truth what we need. We need more more areas and more cities and more more counties, more towns, not necessarily trying to make a story become national or not trying to change national politics or federal federal laws, but trying to change things at a local level with the understanding that these local the things that happen at local levels are, are, are the dominoes. Are the these are the straws and that once we can line these dominoes up and we can build these straws and we can get these receipts at the local levels, we can start to push at all of these different local levels that that is that is that will be a, a will, will cause a, a breaking point that will cause some of these. That will cause uh, these institutional changes and, and institutional alterations that we are looking for, uh, you know, and, I, and again, not institutional alterations or changes. Uh, really, we want a, a destruction and a, a creation, a destruction of of what exists now and a creation of something that is equitable, a creation of something that is just. Uh, but again, we, we have I think that the main thing, one of the things that gets lost a lot of times is when you go to when you, the mainstream thought is to when people say vote, they're talking about on presidential elections. They're talking about on uh, the federal level. They're talking about on the grandest scale. They're not talking about it on a local level or in a, in a, in a, in a vacuum of what is happening directly in your life on an everyday basis. And so I think that that is what we have to start putting a focus on and not simply just electoral politics locally either. Uh, we have to put the focus on uh, education locally. We have to put the focus on combating police terrorism locally, combating mass incarceration locally, combating racial injustice locally, uh, combating uh, uh, living bad living environments locally, combating uh, mental health uh, issues that are uh, happening locally. And, and again, once we get to a point where we are changing the things that are our, rea our local realities, that will begin to change the regional realities. And that will begin to have the effect of changing the national realities. And I think that, again, it's a danger to not, uh, to not put the emphasis on, on some of these local issues. And that's what grassroots organizing does, is it puts the emphasis on the local issues that affects people in a specific community on a day-to-day -day basis. Let's knock out one more passage for this right for reading daily. The Outrageous American Norm, December 18th, 2013. An Indian diplomat, Dr. Devani Kobagradi, charged with filing false employment records for her housekeeper, is arrested, hauled into a U.S. Marshal's office, strip searched, and subsequently released. In India, the event raises quite a ruckus, and Indian nationals express outrage amid calls for diplomatic retaliation against the Americans. It reminds us of the imprisonment and perp walk of French politician and former International Monetary Fund bigwig Dominique Strauss-Kahn, after he was named a suspect in the rape of a Senegalese hotel employee, Nafisatu Diallo, some years ago. Both cases rest upon what has been normal, standard operating procedure in American police practices, the humiliation of the accused. In modern-day America, such police practice is largely aimed at black and brown people, those who have long been the subject of public humiliation, so much so that such treatment has long been normalized. It's just the way things are done here in, quote, the land of the free, end quote. 
When foreigners experience the treatment that Americans of color endure every day, they are shocked. The question is, why aren't we? The reason seems simple. America's repressive, punitive, and humiliating system is supported by media and by the political classes, for such treatment is usually reserved for those already deprived of full social status. Blacks, the poor, and immigrants. For them, every day is humiliation, especially as the rich and the super rich accrue more and more power and more and more impunity to ethics and law. Several months ago, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that strip searches were proper even for something as minor as a traffic stop. When a system becomes so flush with power, it can only further consolidate as it expands, impacting more and more people. Why should any of us be surprised? The last days of President Obama. February 13th, 2014. Uh, okay, let's actually... Here, let me let's speak on that passage that we just read through, and then I'm going to end this one for today, end this right for reading daily, and we'll start up uh, on the last days of President Obama on the next, the next right for reading daily. So, uh, again, we uh, the humiliation aspect of policing is, again, one of the microaggressions that exist in the institution of policing, but it is the impunity to be able to commit these microaggressions that leads these officers to be in the type to have the type of mindset to commit the macroaggressions that we see take place. And so it's the the uh, humiliation of uh, people who have been accused uh, of a crime. It is the uh, intimidation of people that they think may have done a crime. It is the violence that is enacted upon people that they uh, think may have done a crime or that they or ha or have done a crime. Uh, and, and those are all these those are those are specific forms of microaggressions and there are many more of them that exist and depending on what 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 category what what uh class or caste that you fall into in this society you deal with different uh levels of these microaggressions and so a black woman will deal with a specific or a different level of uh, the microaggression from this police officer than a white man may deal with and uh uh uh, a, a trans, uh, someone from the trans community or someone from the LGBTQ plus community will deal with a different version of this microaggression from uh, the a police officer than uh, somebody who is uh, who is somebody who is cis or, or, or from the uh, uh, straight may deal with. Uh, and again, all of these uh, all of these different issues manifest differently on people from different uh, intersectionalities and I think that that is one of the things that we have to and the same thing somebody who is uh, in a rich area or in a rich community will deal with a different form of this microaggression than somebody who uh, is from a poor community or working class community and so all of these different all of these different uh, groups and categories and collectives of people are important to keep in mind when we are talking about combating the issues of police terrorism specifically, because it's once we realize how many the, the unity that we have and the fact that uh, so many different people deal with these things that we'll get to a place where we can begin to combat these things uh, honestly with solidarity. And so. I want to ask people to share this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on. 
uh, anybody, want to encourage anybody who hasn't heard the previous episodes of the Rafa Reading Dailies to go back and listen to the previous episodes. And if there's more episodes out since this one is kind, since this one has been released, uh, please go listen to those as well. Uh, listen to the Social Construct of Leslie, which has new episodes on Sundays and Thursdays. The Live from Occupy City Hall podcast should be beginning to be released soon here. So I uh, want to thank everybody for the support, and we outside.